that's fine. If you start to shift the reference back 100 years, you start to see that Canada really exists on three pillars, First Nations, French, and English. And of course, now multiculturalism and all that kind of thing. But fundamentally, it was those treaty agreements that allowed the sharing of resources that really allowed Canadians and, and Canada to exist as a political entity. Council fans, we're back. It's 2020. It's been a while, I know, and I apologize. It's been a busy year uh, leading up to this, and it's finally time for us to get of Council back up into the swing of things. We're going to try and change the format up a little bit uh, before we had the standard uh, intro where we would say welcome to of Council and what it's all about. But I thought moving forward for 2020, it might be more helpful to get into the introduction in a more informal way like this and deal with any housekeeping issues or uh, questions that you may have uh, or issues that are front and center to the legal community. So if you have any type of questions you want asked uh, of me or maybe potentially of guests, and we'll see how the year goes, just email us to ofcouncil at robishowlaw.ca and we'll read your question out here. Uh, in the intro before we get to our guests. So the first guest of 2020 um, is Nicole O'Byrne. Nicole O'Byrne is a professor at University of New Brunswick Law School. I really enjoyed my interview with Nicole. We had a long discussion about Aboriginal law in Canada, the Indian Act, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, its calls to actions, and its impact on law schools across the country, and how reading these calls to action have become uh, important, if not essential, to understand how Canada arrived to where we are today with First Nations people. In paraphrasing Nicole, she makes the point that we need to learn more about our history, treaties, relations, and the horrible legacies that residential schools left behind and how we must come to terms with them as a country if we want to heal and move on together. We also explored the challenges law students face today with increasing tuition and the pressure that comes with that in employment and compromises that are made uh, in seeking employment and interests that lawyers may be pursuing and the effect that has on the justice system and access to justice if students are going to be compromising efforts towards jobs that might be more akin to social justice and we also discussed her passion for teaching, what it means to her, why she got into academics, and some of the methods that she's found invaluable over the years in producing excellent lawyers um, and being an essential part of the UNB Faculty of Law. So without any further delay, here is Nicole O'Byrne on this episode of Of Counsel. Well, I'll start with the short story. The short story is at some point in my life, I got fascinated with sovereignty and the whole idea of sovereignty and what it is. And I, I probably know less now than I did when I came up with that idea 20 years ago. The long story is 
my older brother graduated from law school when I was seven. Ah. And so um, I apparently went to school and said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I told all my teachers and I was so proud because I thought it was so great that he was in this gown and had crossed the stage. And I didn't even know really what it was, but lawyer. And he articled at this law firm and I, I made up a song about it, <laughs> the name of the firm. And he took me to the firm and he took me to court. And I was a little, I was just amazed by all of it. And then as I got a little bit older, I was like, no, that's his thing. I'm going to find something different. So I got a science scholarship when I was 17 to Queens. And I went and I was a physics major until I flunked out. Uh, (laughs) I I couldn't handle the math. I wasn't prepared. I hadn't taken grade 13. I was coming from Saskatchewan. I mean, not to excuse it. I was also probably too young to, to handle the amount of work or too immature. So I ended up doing a biology degree, which is kind of the default uh, thing for science majors to do at Queens when they when they flunk out of the physics department. So I did that, and I worked for a professor, and I remember it was 1995, and I was working in the lab, and it was the year of the Canada social uh, transfer. So the federal government was offloading a lot of its debt and deficit problems onto the provinces. And that point in time, my older brother was working for the Saskatchewan government. And I came from a very political family where we watched the news every night. We were involved in politics. I worked my first campaign with my dad when I was nine. Um, Always been involved in politics. And the professor I worked for came out of his office and he says, are we still running a deficit? Like he didn't know who the finance minister was. He didn't know the basics of what was going on. I was totally concerned that they'd cut the crow rate. I was reading the Globe and Mail. I was totally concerned about what was going on. And I realized we're not going to tackle climate change or I'm not going to be able to cl- tackle climate change working in a biology lab. Like this is a, these are political issues. And so I need to do something different than studying the science to get at what I'm really concerned with, which was well, environment and trying to make progressive social change. So I went home and after blowing basically my scholarship at Queens, lived in my mom's basement and went to the University of Regina. And I had such a wonderful experience there. I showed up and they still had my admissions records from five years earlier. And so the next week I was in class. Oh, amazing. And they gave me all the scholarships that I had won five years earlier. And so I got kind of a reset and they took a bunch of my classes for credit. So I was there for a couple years and I did Canadian history and I had wonderful professors and they taught us political history and social history and they had no um, PhD program. So they put all their energy into their honor students and all my classmates were so engaged and so political and so into things. And then a bunch of us decided, let's go to law school. And so we didn't apply for a whole lot of law schools. We just applied for the University of Saskatchewan. And we went kind of as a gang. There were five or six of us. And we stayed best friends through law school. And Isn't that neat? It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So where's the gang now? Well, they're all over the place. Like Saskatchewan people tend to spread out all over the place. I'm now in New Brunswick, of course. But Vancouver to Nunavut to you name it, they're all over the place doing all sorts of different kinds of law. So eventually you wind up here at UNB Law and um, 
I want to talk a lot about your studies uh, here, but how did you choose a path of academics over practice? Because you would have obviously obtained your law degree. You've seen your brother practicing and whatever he was doing at the time. Why not follow in those footsteps? Yeah, he ultimately became an academic, and we now write papers together, which pleases my mom. Oh, so he followed your footsteps. No, no, (laughs) he did it first. I am following him. I seem to do that. Um, I remember it was April 1st, 1998. Two letters came in the mail at my mom's house. One was a full scholarship to do a history master's at the University of Saskatchewan, and the other one was acceptance, no money to do a law degree, University of Saskatchewan. And I was so excited about the law school acceptance that I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And so I did and went up there with my friends. I'd kind of applied, wrote the LSAT on a whim with with all of my friends. We studied during reading week by watching Law and Order reruns and <laughs> drinking beer and going cross-country skiing. That was, that was it worked, but uh, that was kind of our strategy. But I, when I got the letters in my hand, it was very clear to me that I wanted to go to law school. And so I did. And then I got to law school and I found some of the courses like contracts to be so decontextualized and so strange that I didn't like them very much. I didn't like property very much. I didn't like contracts. I didn't like torts. I didn't like any of the private law stuff. Fortunately, I had a guy named Howard McConnell teach me division of powers. And he didn't have a syllabus for the course. Uh, he, hmm. he got up and told great stories of Canadian political battles in years present. And he had been involved with the NDP. He had run it as a candidate. He knew Clyde Wells. He'd been involved in the patriation. And he just, he was so riveting and he would get up there and tell these stories. And so every time I thought maybe law school was a mistake and I should have taken that scholarship over in the history department, I'd be in his office And he had a PhD in political science, and he was Peter Russell's first uh, PhD student. And Howie would kind of chuckle, and he would talk me down and say, what you're interested in, political history, sovereignty, and federalism, they're not doing that in history departments very much anymore. It's the lawyers and the legal academics that are getting at federalism. And the political scientists are doing it as well. But history departments aren't really doing much political history anymore. It's kind of out of fashion. So I kind of figured out a way to get through law school, basically writing history papers as much as I was allowed in various subjects. And of course, a lot of law courses are based on history. And if you do understand precedent and old cases and how jurisprudence builds, there is a lot of relevance to to history and those skill sets kind of go back and forth. So I found myself having enough um, professor, uh, enough professors in the in in the law school that would tolerate me and my preoccupations that I was able to make it through, and I did quite well. And so, when you graduate law school, um, were there positions in academia, or were you looking now towards to try and a- apply those skills directly into your interests in division of powers and sovereignty and? Uh, Howard McConnell, who passed away several years ago, he he advised me all the way through law school on what I should do. And and I started listening to my older brother at some point. (laughs) In my 20s, I started to realize maybe he has my best interest at heart. Um, Howie told me, if you get a clerkship to an appeal court, then you'll be able to get whatever job you want. Mm -hmm. And academics, a lot of them have clerked. So I didn't have the world's best grades coming out of first year. They were pretty good. They ranged everywhere from a 
probably a C minus to an A plus. I was all over the place. But Howie told me that Chief Justice Beta wanted a clerk who'd debate with him <laughs> and wouldn't just say, yes, sir, no, sir. I hadn't thought about that, sir. So I spent a week preparing for that interview and Howie kind of gave me a little bit of the inside scoop. And sure enough, the first question on that interview was, should we, should we decriminalize sexual assault? Uh, he didn't look at my resume. He didn't look at my grades. That's just what he asked. And we got into it and we argued about everything. Decriminalizing marijuana, uh, sensing circles, what we should do about overrepresentation of in Indigenous people in jail, you name it. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to get this on my grades. I'm going to get this by fighting with this guy. So I did. And to my delight, I got I got the position, and that allowed me then to get a um, uh, a summer job at a law firm in Regina, and they knew that I was going to go clerk, and I worked at a great firm. It was called Kanuka Thuringer. In fact, I was just talking to one of the lawyers the other day. Um, they were wonderful, and they were they had so many lawyers that were of the mindset that this is this is a profession. And we're not just going to work you for labor. We're, we want you to learn on this job. So when I wrote a memo, the lawyer would take me to court with him and I could watch. I could watch the argument. Um, uh, they really encouraged me to see the whole file. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had taken all this theory, <laughs> jurisprudence and legal history. And all of a sudden, I'm writing memos on the PPSA and all sorts of things and just running around and trying to sort it out. And I loved it. I loved it. I was on a corporate commercial floor and then I loved that. And then I ended up just kind of hanging out with the litigators and I loved that even more. And then I went back for my third year and then I clerked and then I had some time at Legal Aid, went back to the firm for a while. And then there was a day where I was like, you know, there's no time code for thinking on these billing sheets. Legal aid was different. You could not worry about that kind of stuff. You could just work. Yeah. But at the firm, there's only codes for drafting or talking or doing things. And there were some files that we had that I was like, I actually want to spend a month thinking <laughs> about this. And right. there's no time. Like you, you've got two days if you're lucky or one day. There's always the next thing going on. It was just, I loved the fast paced action. I really did. And that really suits my personality. But I really wanted to get into some of the deeper issues that I was seeing in practice that I had learned about at school, but there was no time to do. So I went and said to the managing partner one day that I had applied to McGill and then I had gotten in. And, and he said, well, I guess we're not giving you enough money because <laughs> that, that's the day I realized that maybe you should bargain a little harder for your salary. Anyway, but he said to me, it was great, great advice. His name's Warren Sproul. He's, he's still at the firm. And he said to me, how many of your classmates have the opportunity to go to McGill on a scholarship? And I said, not many. Mm -hmm. Not many have the grades or the clerkship or, or can get in that door. And he says, go do it then. Go see how far you can push that. And if you don't like it or you're done with that, phone me up. We'll put you to work the next day. So all of a sudden I had like this security blanket oh, wow. where I thought I'm not going to starve. I mean, I don't come from a wealthy family. Thank God law school tuition when I went was two grand a year because there's no way I could have gone at these current 
astronomical rates. Um, so I felt like I had a security blanket. So I went to McGill and sorry, this is a very long story, I guess, but I had a supervisor and I picked McGill because I had seen Rod McDonald give a talk. He was our law review lecturer when I was in third year and I was on law review. And he talked about legal education and what it could be. And my profs at U of S, God, if any of them are listening to this, they know that I complained so much about law school. <laughs> I was in student government. I was the vice president of academic. I was in their offices. I was on faculty council complaining about stuff all the time, advocating for things. And I thought, geez, he sees something different about legal education or what it really can be. And not simply a trade school where we're training lawyers for practice, but a real hall of academe and a place where we train lawyers for practice. It can be both. And that really struck me as a very profound way. And I remember that day I met him at the faculty club that night. And I said, look, I've written a paper for my fiduciary obligation professor. And I gave the presentation and he doesn't like it. <laughs> and he says, well, what's it about? So I told him and he says, why don't you send it to me? And he says, I expect that your professor will give you a fair shake on it. And he did. I got a, I got a really good mark on it. But more importantly, Rod read it and had sent me a letter saying, I want, I want you to apply and mm. I'll supervise you. Wow. And it was a pretty crazy paper. It was about the history of equity. I went right back to Aristotle and I talked about the Supreme Court of Canada not understanding fiduciary obligation because our study and understanding of equity is impoverished. Mm. And I kind of traced back to Aristotle that Ar equity exists to kind of counterbalance and fill in the cracks of common law. And it's not just some kind of added extra, but it's a fundamental part of the way we do justice. And that's what Rod was interested in. And so he let me do that. And instead of pushing me to take practical courses in which I could write a paper that would be a chapter of my thesis, he, on the first day we met, I went into his office and I said, oh, I'm so happy to be back in law school. And he said, this is not a law school. This is a faculty of law. I want you to write me a 100-page paper on the difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking down the hill at McGill and walking back home thinking, I don't know what he's talking about. And I spent six weeks on a paper on the history of legal education in Canada and that age-old struggle of what is legal education really about? Training people for practice or theory and jurisprudence? There's always been that tussle between what does the law society want? How are we going to accredit these law schools? And then law schools saying, you know what? We're really more like sociologists or social scientists or bringing in humanities. And we're not just doing doctrinal analysis. We actually bring more to the table than that. And Rod was really interested in that. And so was I. And Rod had been involved in the Arthur's Report, which was 1983. It was called Law and Learning. And that really, that report really set the groundwork for legal education in the last 30 years in Canada. And he had been in on the ground floor of that. And then one of my colleagues here, Ed Veach, who just retired, he was one of the co-authors on that report as well. And that really appealed to me. So I did, I was at McGill for a while, wrote my master's thesis. I went back to the law firm at some point, though, and said, I miss it. Yeah. Really? And again, that managing partner said to me, all right, what's your earning potential if you pursue the academic route? Here's what we can do for you the next five, seven years. 
why don't you go try the PhD? He told me the same thing he had told me two years earlier. How many people can get in that PhD program and get a scholarship? Why don't you just push it? We'll always be here. So I did. So I went to UVic and did my PhD in law and society, really did uh, a lot more legal history, and then started to realize that my, uh, although I missed practice terribly and I missed my clients, um, and I missed the action, and I, I really loved being in the courtroom, um, that I really liked being in the archives, yeah. and I really liked figuring out things that people had not figured out or had not seen as important, or I was trying to look at things differently and ask different questions, and I had the three best supervisors you could ever ask for at UVic. I had Hamar Foster, who's a great legal historian, Jeremy Weber, who's well, he's a law professor, but he's really a political philosopher. I had John McLaren. I worked for him uh, as a research assistant. He's now retired, one of the best legal historians that's ever been in Canada. And it was a very small program. There are only two PhD students in my cohort. It was a new grad program. They felt that I had taken, I had taken a gamble on them. They took a gamble on me. It was a great experience. I was there for four years and because of their reference letters, I got this job. That's how I got this job. That's amazing. So all over the country, all, all the way over from the place. Saskatchewan mm -hmm. out to McGill and then out to Victoria, you name it. Never thought I'd end up in the Maritimes, but when I saw the job ad, I thought, well, I, I better go learn how to do an academic job talk and an interview. That's kind of what I was thinking. I, I wasn't finished my PhD at that point, but I thought, geez, I better just go and then one of the professors here picked me up at the airport. We talked all the way into town. They picked me up the next day for the interview. They were really interested in what I was working on, which I thought was great because it all has to do with Western Canadian indigenous natural resources and Métis policy. It has nothing to do with the Maritimes whatsoever. And they were fascinated by it. It's all sorts of good questions. And maybe they were just now, I know the Maritimers are just generally nice. So maybe that would <laughs> just be nice to me. But I felt really good. I met the students. I felt really good. And I realized that at UNB, teaching is a priority. And for me, teaching is number one. I mean, my research is very important. But what's happening in the classroom, that I figure is my number one job as a law professor. And that's the priority around here. We, we don't have a graduate program. We really prioritize putting a lot of energy into our undergrads, and I have benefited that from that attitude, University of Regina and at UVic and everywhere I've been. And that's the kind of philosophy that I thought best suited my belief in how we can change legal education is right there on the ground floor, right from the first week of law school. So I teach quite differently. My PhD is in law and society. I'm now the president of the Law Society Association. I bring in a lot of social science. I bring in a lot of poli-sci. I bring in a lot of context. We do a lot of law, but I don't think you can understand the law unless you understand where it comes from or the problems it's trying to address. And we get students that come in here with honors degrees in political science and masters in history or PhDs in English, like all sorts, and they actually have that training. They already get it. And so I spent a lot of time trying to convince them that if you can mix that up with some legal analysis and some issue spotting and a bit of jurisprudence, 
that's a really, really effective combination for making change and representing your clients quite well. Well, I can certainly sense that walking around here today and meeting with professors and uh, talking to a lot of the students. um, There's certainly a passion for that teaching that, um, you know, I haven't spent time at many law schools, but it does stand out, I have to say. So I want to ask you about your um, some of your interests, in particular, Indigenous law. Um, So despite you being involved personally in teaching Indigenous law at UNB since 2009, uh, it seems to me anyway that more law schools now seem to place a greater emphasis on this area. So first of all, do you agree with that? Uh, Do you think it's becoming more prevalent and and more of a focus on law schools across the nation? Yeah, I do. I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action uh, really um, stimulated that as well. I think some schools had already been on the vanguard of that. UVic, for instance, has really had a focus on that for a long time. They now have a joint degree where you can get a bachelor's in Indigenous law at the same time as your Bachelor of Common Law. That's the first program like it in the world. It's it's extraordinary what they're doing out there. Um, I would like to make a clarification that I teach Aboriginal law and not Indigenous law. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not Indigenous. Um, and Indigenous law really has to do more with the culture, practice, and traditions of, of the local territory. We don't have anyone in the law faculty right now teaching Wabanaki or uh, Willastaquick traditions or law. We're looking for somebody that is a priority of ours. Other law schools have elders and residents or have people on faculty from those traditions that are teaching the law of the area. Lakehead has been a, pr- a pioneer in this area. That's why they, part of the rationale for that law school. So they're quite ahead. Um, it's been a conversation in academic circles for a long time is how do you indigenize the curricula? How do you actually bring in these areas? Because as someone who's taught Aboriginal law for 10 years, uh, a lot of people think of it as a very niche area that doesn't really connect up with other areas of law, but it does. If you have an Aboriginal client, they might have a family law problem or a wills and estates problem, or set up, they want to set up a business on a reserve or any of these things. So there's so much crossover and where lawyers run into trouble is that they don't understand the history or what the treaties are or where these people are coming from. They might know the law part, but not really understand how it interacts with the Indian Act or any of the other First Nations Management Act or any of those kind of things. So we really need lawyers that understand the corporate commercial and those aspects, but also are very understanding of the history and why the situation of Aboriginal, Indigenous people, Métis people in this country is quite different. It's because the history is so profoundly different. So not everyone who listens to this podcast are lawyers, and even lawyers who listen to it may not necessarily know what, in a general sense, uh, Aboriginal law is. And I know that we could do a whole podcast (laughs) series on this, and maybe you should. But um, can you just tell us in general sense what is Aboriginal law and its intersection with uh, Canadian law? Well, Aboriginal law essentially is Canadian law applied to Aboriginal peoples. That's the the easiest way I can explain it. Um, It's things like the Indian Act. Uh, It's things why we have reserves. Um, What are treaty rights? Uh, why Why is Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 say that existing Aboriginal and treaty rights are hereby recognized and affirmed? What does that mean? That's not part of the charter. It really has to do with governance. 
And a lot of people, including myself, think that Section 35 is a order of government on par to Section 91 that deals with the jurisdiction of the federal government and Section 92 that deals with jurisdiction of provincial governments. And that Section 35, when we patriated the Constitution and then constitutionalized Aboriginal treaty rights, it means that we've adopted, uh, without even maybe knowing what it meant, uh, treaty federalism, which means we've got another order of government. And we've spent the last 35 years or so trying to sort out what does that mean? And that's what we talk about in class. So it's through constitutional negotiations that maybe have failed. Charlottetown failed. Kelowna Accord didn't go anywhere. But they changed the conversation about the scope of rights. We've had Aboriginal people going to court to assert their rights forever, really. But the big cases came Calder 1973 with respect to the existence of Aboriginal title in Canada still existing in our common law system. Um, cases like Sparrow, cases like Marshall that say that there's a, a, a right to fish for a moderate livelihood. And these things, these decisions have provoked a lot of um, reaction in the media, a lot of people not understanding what this means. Why do Aboriginal people have quote unquote special rights? And we talk about all of those things. So in class, it's really a Canadian history class. We go right back to Confederation in 1867. In fact, we go back further. We go back to 1763 and the Royal Proclamation and the Treaty of Niagara 1764, which really the British at the time were talking to the First Nations as being allies and the treaties that were signed in the 18th century were about military alliances. They were not about ceding land. They were not about giving land up to the crown. It was none of that. And so if we go back and use that frame of reference for looking at Aboriginal and treaty rights, and treaty rights being a nation-to-nation -nation agreement that has then been constitutionalized in Section 35, we're talking about something very different than just a contract or some special right or added advantage or some part of the Indian Act that's obscure and difficult to get through. We're talking about fundamentally changing the idea of, of Canada itself. Because if you focus on 1867 and you think it was just kind of a, a way to compromise between English and French and to bring Quebec and the rest of Canada together in kind of a common political enterprise, even to just not be absorbed by the US, if you want to look at Confederation that way. That's fine. If you start to shift the reference back 100 years, you start to see that Canada really exists on three pillars, First Nations, French, and English. And of course, now multiculturalism and all that kind of thing. But fundamentally, it was those treaty agreements that allowed the sharing of resources that really allowed Canadians and, and Canada to exist as a political entity. So we, we, we tackle big constitutional problems and we look at the scope of Aboriginal title, we look at residential schools, we look, look at truth and reconciliation, calls to action. We do a lot in that course. Um, there's a lot of reading, we tackle a lot of areas, um, but I have fun doing it, and I think the students learn quite a bit. It sounds like it. Tell me uh, a little bit about the report on the truth and reconciliation. Um, where has that um, taken us, and where is it going to take us? Well, for years I had 
you know, 16, 17 people in a seminar taking Aboriginal law. And a lot of people had some background in it before they came to law school. Some people said, you know, I know nothing about this area and I think I should. So that's why I'm here, which I thought was a great reason to take my course. And then in 2015, the TRCs released. And there's two calls in there, 27 and 28, that specifically have to do with law societies and law schools, saying that they really should be teaching. And in fact, to the level of the expectation of professional competency. This isn't just some niche area that is interesting, but to be a lawyer in Canada, you should have some fundamental knowledge of the basics of treaty relationships, of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, what uh, Aboriginal title means, the history of residential schools, those kind of things, cultural competency. So, as the TRC came out in 2015, and the following year, I had 35 people in my class. So the students started to see it being discussed and started learning a little bit more about residential schools and wanted to know more. And we talk about some of the issues in my criminal law class, like sentencing circles and various issues over representation of Aboriginal people in jail, for instance. And people wanted to know a little bit more about well, why? What are the root causes of some of this? And the recommendations of the TRC basically say, we all need to learn more. We need to learn more history. We need to understand the, the treaties. We need to understand their relationships. We need to understand the, the horrible legacy of residential schools. And until we start to grapple with that, we're not going to be able to decolonize as a nation. And ultimately, when we patriated the Constitution in 1982, that was finally to say, hey, we're a grown-up country. We now have our own amending formula. Okay, it doesn't really work most of the time, and it's too onerous. Never mind. But we've cut all time ties, any meaningful ties to Britain. They no longer have any control. Okay? And so we are now our own nation. And it took decades to get to that agreement in 1982, and we excluded Quebec. I mean, that was just not perfect. But we also brought in Section 35 that said, we need to really deal with Aboriginal and treaty rights. So they put it in the Constitution in 1982, and then said, we don't really know what that means. So we'll have three rounds of constitutional negotiations after that. And they did in the 1980s. And a couple of them uh, Pierre Trudeau was 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 running the negotiations, and then Brian Mulroney comes in a little bit later, and they ultimately break down. There's just a fundamental misunderstanding between the First Nations and Métis leaders, and the leaders of the federal government, and then particularly the provincial premiers, as to what does any of this mean. So the First Nations and Métis people just started going to court. And that's when we start to see some of these big decisions in the 1990s, like Sparrow, Sparrow and Delgamuk and, and Marshall. So those are the kind of things that we're starting to see more attention being brought to. And the TRC says, okay, well, we can wring our hands and say, oh, this is a big, complicated problem. Or there's 94 tangible things that we can do. And they're calls to action for all levels of government and then universities that here's what you can do. And they range anywhere from uh, eliminating Section 43 of the Criminal Code that has to do with corporal punishment. Now, the Supreme Court has has saved that section and said it's constitutional by saying, well, you, you, you can't strike a child under two years of age. You can't use anything to strike 
the child and they've kind of read it in a way that it's quite limited. But in the context of residential schools, where generations of First Nations people suffered abuse, corporal abuse, and they say, we just want to eliminate that at all. Corporal punishment's not okay in any circumstance. Eliminate it. Well, now the Senate is starting to study that, and maybe we should go that direction. So it puts more context onto these issues. That's the importance of the calls to action. So you can read them. It's not very long. You can read the whole report, which is very long, but you can read the 94 calls to actions and you can say, well, what can I do? Or what can I ask my city councilor to do? Or what can I talk to my MLA about? And how do we actually move forward together? Because it's not the Indigenous people who need to know more about this. It's the non-Indigenous people in this country that don't know the history of residential schools, don't understand the purpose or, or scope of treaty rights, don't understand any of these things. And I think there's more and more interest. And the TRC has really been part of really um, giving a focus to some of that interest and giving people kind of a to-do list saying, well, here's what you can do about it. And it can be as something as small as going to a movie and learning about it. Clint Eastwood produced a movie called Indian Horse. We showed that movie here last fall. There's enough hockey in it that you can kind of convince <laughs> people that it's a hockey movie, right. but it really deals with residential schools as mm -hmm. well. And that's a good introduction to the issues. And then we ha have conversations about things like that. Um, what, uh, what sort of uh, pedagogy have you utilized in educating students and perhaps professors listening to this trying to figure out uh, effective ways to pass on uh, these types of lessons and, and um, ensuring that people come to understand things like the TRC and well, I, as I've kind of alluded to before, there's a lot of reading. <laughs> so, there's, so there's a lot of traditional uh, learning in my class. And then um, we basically have a talking circle in class. I, I, don't, um, I don't allow laptops in my class. I don't want distractions. I don't want people looking at their screens. I want people to talk to one another. Um, we use a lot of sentencing, well, sentencing circle kind of design where we go around in a circle addressing a particular problem. I take my students on a lot of field trips. Uh, the local um, St. Mary's First Nation here, we have an urban reserve in Fredericton. I know the chief, he's been very supportive. He gives us free tickets to all sorts of things. So when there's a cultural event, I can take my class. We go watch uh, dancers. We've been to powwows. Um, uh, Jeremy Dutcher was here, gave a, a concert. We, we went to that. Uh, we go to movies. We went to the art gallery. There was um, an indigenous artist exhibition. Uh, the curator gave us a great tour of the indigenous art collection at the Beaverbrook Art Gallery. That was fascinating. And I think when the students see the art, talk to the elders, watch the movies, uh, the National Film Board has lots of films that are available for free online. We watch several of them. Um, they get a better sense that we're really dealing with people. Um, in my self-government class yesterday, I had a film producer. His name's Lloyd Salomon. He spent a lot of time up in uh, northern Ontario uh, working on a series of films for the Aboriginal People's Television Network on the Ring of Fire development, the, the $50 billion proposed mining of chromite in northern Ontario and what kind of infrastructure will be involved, 
how the duty to consult will have to be fulfilled. Uh, the First Nations have hired Bob Ray, former Ontario Premier, to be their negotiator. You've got Frank Iacobucci involved. I mean, and so he's he's gone into the communities with his crew and they have talked to people about what's involved in this. And the scope is just mind-blowing. It's it's as big or bigger than the tar sands in Alberta. So we're going to need a lot of lawyers. And that's what I said in class yesterday was people tend to think of this as a social justice class that's kind of in addition to what you're learning in your other law courses. But it's not. It's fundamental. We need people who can handle the negotiations, draft the deals, be involved in negotiating the impact benefit agreements, being able to say no if the deal's not good enough, dealing with the lawyers on all sides. Um, there's, there's generations of work ahead of us as we get into the economic development potential on reserves and, and in traditional territories in this country. And it's going to have to be this time, unlike the past, on the terms set by the Indigenous people for their best interest. That's how we have to move forward. Hey everyone, before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms, which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest eBrief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website, roboshowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast, and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting wills, trusts, and estate litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, there's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating, and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content, and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. I want to um, move uh, to ask you about teaching and uh, I can see you're very passionate about teaching and educating your students and in very um, innovative and, and seemingly effective ways uh, but sometimes it's said that uh, teaching is a two-way street what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned from your students over the years well I, I let them pick their essay topics and when they come to see me for guidance I'm like well what interests you or what's your background and you know if I have somebody with an MA in history I'm going to say, well, you know, get into something. You know, I had a student last year in my self-government class who took the course because when he was younger, he played hockey and they played against a team from reserve. And he said there were a lot of fights and racial slurs. And he says, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was going on. These, these guys are my friends and we played hockey. And then all of a sudden there'd be a fight in the parking lot. So... 
here I am taking this course and trying to figure this out. So he's now articling. He's back in Cape Breton. Um, but he wrote a paper for me on the member two First Nation and their economic development. And 20 years ago or so, they, they went and got ISO certified. So they have a bunch of economic investment. They've got casino, they've got a convention center, uh, they've got recreation facilities. I had a tour of it last summer. It's extraordinary. I met the lawyer who helped them do all those negotiations for the last 25 years. He's now retired. He's a very, very interesting man. And Gary Carson, he's his name. He's done great, great work. And so this student of mine, I get reports every once in a while, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's right in there trying to help the First Nations because they're a client mm -hmm. really perform to their economic potential so that they can really keep the profits of the natural resources and the businesses on reserves in the community for the benefit of the community, and they have more control. And lawyers can really help do that. So teaching, uh, I try to be... Um, well, I, I'm, I'm fairly theoretical. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of, um, uh, well, there's a lot of reading. I don't apologize for that because uh, it's law school. But I also want them to think, how can I use this knowledge in a practical way as a lawyer? So it's not just for, it's interesting and theoretical and what a conundrum we're in, but we are going to have First Nations and Métis clients and what do they need from us? Or we're going to be working in the Department of Indian Affairs and how can we give effective, adequate advice to an assistant deputy minister or something like that. So I have people writing memos. I really have my students uh, focus on their presentation skills. And um, we do a lot of uh, public speaking uh, in class. And then I have them do formal presentations. They peer review one another's presentations uh, in my evidence class. I have them write case analysis. Uh, a, l a lot of them have been published. I have people writing memos with executive summaries and research checklists as if you were in a law firm. I am not loved for that particular assignment because I'm the first professor. That's the first. It's it's evidence. It's usually first term of second year, and it's the first time anybody's asked them to do that big of a project or that difficult of a project in law school. And then they love me a couple years after graduation. <laughs> uh, I get these emails saying, you know, I really didn't like your class that much. And I thought the evidence memo was a little bit onerous. And now I write a memo every day. Thank you very much. You're the first person who taught me how to write an executive summary. So I, I teach, I, I hope, what is a useful set of skills with a lot of theory and history backing it up. I noticed that you are president of the Canadian Law and Society Association. What, what is that organization and um, what is your role in it as president? Well, we represent legal scholars and other scholars who study the law. So sociologists, uh, we have political scientists um, who are interested in law and legal studies from a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary perspective. So it's all the people who, um, well, it, it, there's a lot of criminologists involved in our organization. So we don't just look at black letter law. We don't just look at the doctrine, but we say, okay, what's really going on here, right? So 
there's a lot of people who do feminist legal studies, but it's kind of bringing something and. So law and society basically means law and geography or law and film studies, law and feminism. So our conferences are absolutely varied. There's all mm. sorts of people in there coming at law from every different angle. And we provide a forum as an organization for people to have these conversations. So people who teach in law faculties talking to somebody who's in a sociology uh, department sure. somewhere. And so we try to facilitate those conversations. Sometimes it's pretty bumpy because <laughs> <laughs> the legal academics are struggling to understand what the social scientists are saying and saying, yeah, but you're forgetting about the law. It actually, you know, the, this actually matters. You can't just dismiss the statute. And you have the sociologist saying, okay, like, let's tell, teach me why that's relevant to my analysis. So we really have some wide ranging conversations. So we have um, an annual conference every June. It attracts two, 300 people to give papers and presentations, roundtables on a whole variety of topics. We have a, a mid-year meeting. This year it's going to be in Ottawa. Um, we, well, I'm the president, so I get to go to the international conferences. So I spent two weeks in Australia in December at the New Zealand and Australian Law and Society Association. Amazing. That was amazing to see what's going on there. Uh, they teach a lot more history. They teach a lot more equity. Um, it's interesting to see the approach to teaching. Uh, we had a really, really interesting time uh, talking about Canadian constitutional issues and Indigenous issues. And then someone would be watching the paper and then ask questions from their perspective from New Zealand or Australia mm -hmm. or whatnot. It was a really, really interesting... We had... There were people from all over the world at that conference, and it was just fascinating. I, I just I met somebody from Peru, and we talked about land title for an hour, and it was so great to see that. Um, well, his paper was on um, giving rivers legal personality, and throughout the world, uh, there's two rivers in India that are now considered to be legal persons. There's one in New Zealand, and then I think the other one's in Colombia. And they're studying that. And that's starting to be a litigation strategy in Canada. We're right at the beginning here. What does it mean to call the Willastiquic River, St. John River here in New Brunswick, a legal person? Does that change how we would create policy? What if the river could bring a court <laughs> action to court for mm -hmm. pollution or whatnot, or right. guardians on behalf of that to river? Standing, yeah. Right. So we're kind of moving into this international conversation with respect to a lot of different legal issues. And so um, legal pluralism is kind of the underlying theoretical basis of that organization is to not just restrict ourselves to one particular view of the law, but let's explore as many as we can and be as varied as we can and as rich in our conversations as we can so that we can really make sure that the law maintains its vibrance and it reflects the needs of society. And that's where law and society comes from. If law gets too divorced and removed from society, let's look at the marijuana laws, for instance. Okay, it's decriminalized now. But people have been pretty dismissive of those regulations and pro <laughs> prohibitions oh, sure. yeah. for generations, right? right. The Ladane Commission came out in 1971 saying that marijuana should be decriminalized and this is all kind of silly, right? Right. So 
you have people kind of move away from the law and start to not respect it, its authority mm-hmm. if it doesn't reflect their everyday lived experience. So law and society scholarship says the law needs to reflect the problems that human beings are having now and have that conversation back and forth. Wow, very interesting. What do you see as some of the major challenges facing law schools in 2019, um, particularly in areas that we've already discussed, but also just the future of where legal education is going, where it needs to be, tuition? Okay. It's a pretty big question, I know, but what do you see as some of the more pressing issues? As a student who protested a tuition increase by, we occupied the library for a couple of days, as I recall. <laughs> but they, when I was in law school at the University of Saskatchewan, the dean at the time had agreed to a increasing the tuition from $2,000 to $10,000. And of course, grandfather us through so we wouldn't have to pay the increase. And we protested and we occupied the library and we called in the media and we had a chant, as I recall, something about Cretchen, aren't you a lawyer, don't you care, something like that. Anyway, we protested. Um, the dean ended up resigning over it because she had agreed that the increase would go to general revenue of the university and not directly to the law school. And people could kind of stomach the increase if it was going to go directly to benefiting the program and right. the students taking that program. But when a law school gets treated like a cash cow for the rest of the university, that's when we had a problem, and the faculty revolted, and that dean and that dean resigned. It was it was quite an episode. Anyway, flash forward several years, and I'm on the board of governors here at the University of New Brunswick. I've been on for five years, and the thinking, and I, I don't think it's just our university. I think it's all it's happening all, all across the country is that they see that there's a great demand for law school. And there always has been, right? For 100 spots, you might have 1,000 applicants. So I think university administrators see that and go, well, why aren't we teaching 1,000? If 1,000 people apply, wow. And we can charge them differential tuition. And they see it just as a supply-demand calculation, right? And they don't think... Well, are these people going to be employed at the end? How many jobs? Does the law society matter? That's not how university administrators think. They think we need money. Funding's being cut by provincial governments all the time, or the the money's not flowing as readily as it did before. So they're trying to find ways to make more money to continue funding the arts programs and other programs. So they see engineering and law and business as a high demand that students and their parents will be willing to pay a lot of money for these programs. So now we're in a situation where uh, our students here pay $11,000 a year tuition. It's going to be going up to fourteen next year. It's probably going to hit eighteen or 20 here in the next two, three years. Um, I voted against that increase, of course, at the Board of Governors. I was on the losing side of that vote. So here we are. I... I can't overstate how strongly I feel that law school needs to be accessible. And I'm going to get emotional about this. I guess <laughs> I remember being occupying the library or whenever when I was in law school, but I wouldn't have been able to go to law school at 10 grand a year. Right. And now U of T is 40 something a year. I couldn't, I wouldn't have even filled out the application form because it would have been so far beyond my means and my family's means 
that I would have done something else. I guess I would have taken that scholarship and, and done the history MA. It would have been fine, I guess. But I feel that we're not even hearing from students like me. And that's where we're really affecting the indigenous and Métis students mm -hmm. who are coming often first generation in the university, often don't have the financial resources. And the scholarships, they're just not up there. I mean, we, we're still giving people scholarships as if the tuition's still $2,000 a year, right? That money has not gone up in proportion to the tuition. And it's not just here, that's across the country, right? So uh, I think that's the biggest challenge is how do we keep law school accessible? I have students who tell me that they're, even with our tuition rate being lower than most, have after two degrees more than $100,000 debt. It limits their job choices. A lot of them want to go into, you know, uh, non-governmental organizations they want to uh, go to legal aid they want to they want to do other jobs and they feel compelled to take the jobs and in 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 the maritimes it's called the big three so there's um stuart mckelvey mckennis cooper and um cox and palmer so they're like the toronto seven they're, sisters yeah they're, yeah they're the big ones and and they pay more right. and so there's a sense that those are the best jobs. They pay the most. A lot of students are saying, well, it's not even the kind of law I want to do. But I got this big debt. Mm -hmm. And the day after graduation, the interest rates, I mean, the, the bill collectors are coming, right? And, and the articling, there, there's enough pressure already. They've got this huge debt. And so where I would love to send some of my students to grad school, they say no to me because they just can't even imagine how they would fund it. Their, their parents or their partners have put up with two degrees, but they just can't imagine a third. I So I, I see some people that are very, very talented as potential academics or should be working, um, you know, for a, a clinic somewhere or doing something else, being, being put into these jobs that's not their first choice. And that's for sheer financial considerations. I think that's the biggest challenge we've got. So... In wrapping up, I have some more philosophical, broader questions. I want to ask you, you know, you're someone who's clearly capable of achieving a sustained level of excellence in academic performance and output. And I wonder, do you have any tips that you could pass on for those that are trying to ob obtain something similar in their own careers? Is it just a matter of hard work or is there something more there? Well, like I said earlier, I got some good advice from Howard McConnell, and I started listening to my older brother at some point. There's always room for people at the top. And people at the top, in my, at least in my experience, when I've observed, do what they like to do, right? So that it's not a job and it's not a chore. So if you want to do insurance defense and you're super interested in that and you really, that's what, you, you, in law school, you just found that fascinating, well, go do that then because you're probably going to be good at it. And same with academics. F don't just try to figure out what the market is and how you can fit some niche somewhere. Right. You might want to do a bit of that. But what's going to sustain you through the long run is continuing to be very interested, right? How many retired professors do we know who who work even more? Like they're they just so they just love what they're doing and well into their 80s. They just, they're going to conferences, they're reading more books, they're still writing papers, they're, they're just so engaged in what they're doing. And 
from observing those people, it's because they do what they like to do. So I'm always trying to get my students to say, well, what class did you like? Like, what professor really did you find engaging? Or what subject do you find interesting? Don't worry about whether or not you think that's marketable or it's not corporate commercial enough or whatever. But if you love family law, you're probably going to be a good family law lawyer. And that's kind of what we need. So I think those things, those ideas reinforce one another. Again, with the increasing debt, the increasing tuition, there's, the students are starting to be a lot more bloody-minded about mm-hmm. their decision-making and saying, well, what I'd love to do is this. I'm feeling compelled to do something else. And I've been around for a while, and I get letters and emails from students after graduation. And sometimes the ones who picked the route that didn't interest them that much, they quit law altogether because yeah. they just really don't like it. They just don't like it and they don't find it very easy to transfer after three or four or five years into an area that they really do like. I'll give you a counterexample to that, though. I was at a prison law conference last fall in Halifax and we're at the lunch and this guy walks by me and he looked familiar and he came up to me and he said, hi, I'm Pete LeCain. I was in your very first Aboriginal law seminar in 2009. And I said, yeah, hi, Pete, how are you? (laughs) And, he, and I, he had gone off to practice corporate commercial, and he said he loved it. It was great. But one day he was walking home for work, and he said, you know what I really liked? I really liked Aboriginal law. And, of course, I'm very happy to hear this story in the hallway <laughs> at this conference. But he said he, he went home that day, and he talked to his wife, and they had two little kids. And he says, how do you feel if I take a job in, at legal aid up in Nunavut? Yeah. So he's up in Cambridge Bay. Isn't that he's amazing? He's been there for three years. Wow. The kids are embarrassed that he doesn't speak better in Nutatut because at daycare they're learning all the, you know, <laughs> and he loves it. Yeah. And his wife's a teacher and she's teaching and he's so happy. And he says, you know, I enjoyed doing what I was doing, but I couldn't see myself doing it for another 25, 30 years. And so he jumped and he's happy. So to me, that's the greatest success story is that he's really doing what he what he wants to do. And we're, that's what we're trying to encourage here, I think, is helping students figure out what they want to do and whether that's academics or working for governments or working at a corporate commercial firm. You have to have enough self-awareness and then enough confidence in yourself to say that I believe the job will come if I focus and I work hard. You clearly love what you're doing. Um, I can see that. We're here reasonably late on a Thursday, and uh, it looks like you've got enough energy to go another four hours. So, But let me ask you this. If uh, you're not uh, here on campus, what do you uh, love doing? Is there some sort of activity that you love to do to unwind or just escape law for a few moments? Yeah, I'm training to be a yoga instructor. Are you really? Yes, I am. There was a point at Legal Aid where I began to realize that there wasn't enough time at the gym I was starting to go to the gym twice a day to deal with the stress. Wow. And uh, I, at some point just realized I I got to do something different. And so I took a yoga class, just kind of was at the gym. And I thought, well, it's weird. I've never, I've never done it. Let's try it. I was so inflexible from so many years of running and doing all other sorts of stuff that I could barely touch my toes. And I began to learn that yoga is much more about the exercise. It's using the exercise to get at the mental and 
the mental and emotional strength to do the physical exercises. So that's your entryway in is kind of the physicality of it. But the asanas and the movements are actually to get at your mental state. Mm -hmm. And how can you bring um, peace and strength to everything that you do? So I've spent the last 20 years <laughs> doing yoga. I'm in the studio four or five days a week. And I'm training to be a teacher. And it's the toughest training. It's It makes law school look like a walk in the park. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a teacher in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. I see her a couple times a year. And uh, I'm not ready yet uh, to... Well, there's different levels or whatever, but that's that's what I do. I have a studio in my basement, um, and I have three little dogs, and my little dogs are ridiculous and funny. They're three little Havanese, and I work a lot at home, and so they sit under my desk, and they're pretty good for three hours or so, but at some point, they're like, you know... I think it's time to go outside. Like, let's play some Frisbee or do something. So they get me out and then we go for a walk and we hang out and we meet all the other dogs oh, and the owners great. in the neighborhood. And there's a forest behind my house because we live in New Brunswick where there's a 10 acre forest <laughs> behind my Amazing. house and we walk the trail and, and we're outside. And so that's what I do for, for, well, to reinvigorate myself, to, to go back at, at the books and the archives and whatnot. So last question. Um, if you could change one Supreme Court of Canada case or tweak it or even just some major law, what would it be? All right. Well, there's two cases, Blay and Powley. They have to do with the British North America Act 1930. And that's the subject of my master's and my dissertation. And why I wrote my master's and PhD on a particularly obscure part of the Canadian Constitution that nobody knows anything about, although I'm hoping to change that. I'm working on my book. We'll see what happens. Um, I hope it'll be the next new thing. We'll see. It's taken me years. Um, is that these two cases, Blay and Powley, what the Natural Resources Transfer Agreements did in 1930 was transfer the administration and control of the public domain lands of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba from the Crown and Right of Canada, where they had administered the resources through the Minister of the Interior from Ottawa from 1870 right up till 1930. And all the way through from the Métis leader Louis Riel, when he was leader of the provisional government in Manitoba, said, we're not equal. If we don't have control over a public domain and we can't derive the revenue from it and use it in ways that reflect the culture and linguistic needs of our people. And we make those decisions at our level of government. We don't have self-government. And Ottawa said, well, you know, we're trying to coordinate an immigration program and homestead policy and run a railway out to BC so that they'll join confederation. We don't want to deal with separate provincial governments. They can be difficult. They might not be of our political persuasion. And look at all those fights between Ottawa and Ontario in the late 19th century where they went to the Judicial Committee, the Privy Council, over and over and over, fighting over everything, okay? So that's what they did. They Ottawa retained control of the resources of the three prairie provinces. And that's the roots of Western alienation. So in the 70s, when they're fighting over oil and Preston Manning is saying the West wants in, the roots are that Ottawa controlled the resources of the Prairie Provinces until 1930. Now, what they did in 1930 was sign a series of agreements that become constitutionalized. 
that kind of deal with unscrambling the scrambled egg because once you've run public policy from one level of government for generations, moving it over to another level of government, and that involves national parks, uh, grazing lands, timber leases, school lands. It's, it's unbelievably complicated. They had three royal commissions to deal with it. I mean, it's, it's the big issue in the 1930s for the prairie provinces is unwinding, setting up their own provincial land departments and whatnot. And then here's the complication. And I will get to blame Pelly <laughs> in a couple minutes. But what happens is, the federal government has uh, responsibility under 9124 of the BNA Act for Indians and lands reserved for Indians. So they have to retain that responsibility, yet transfer all the lands over to the provincial governments according to these agreements. But according to the treaties they signed with the First Nations people in Western Canada, they haven't set aside all the reserve land that they promised. They had also not granted all the Métis script land that they had said the Métis people were entitled to. They hadn't done it. They'd done some of it, but they hadn't done all of it. So there's two clauses in the NRTAs that basically say um, the federal government uh, can get more land from the provinces if they need it to fulfill outstanding obligations to Indigenous and Métis people. And the provinces say, sure, just give us control and whatever you need, we'll send back. Well, they don't. And the federal government never enforces that part of the agreements. And we run into the Great Depression and we run into World War II. And you've got Métis people saying, well, I'm ready to go farming. I want my land. They send in a letter to the federal government saying, I want my 240 acres or whatever it is. And the federal government say, we transferred everything over to the province in 1930. Contact them. So they do. This is all in the archives. The province then says, well, that's an outstanding federal obligation. That They'll have to take it out of their remaining land reserve. We're not doing it. They already alienated most of our land. They're leaving us with scraps. So the Métis people and First Nations people are kind of left in the cracks. Now, where we get to Blaine Powley is Justice Corey, in those decisions, he wrote the decisions, basically said the NRTAs, were a merger and consolidation of the treaties that had been signed in the 19th century in which the First Nations people had agreed to give up their commercial rights to hunt, fish, and trap in exchange to have access over a greater area. So all crown land, national parks, that kind of stuff. Well, of course, the First Nations who had been at the treaty signings in the 1870s were not involved in any way, shape, or form in the negotiations that led up to the natural resources transfer agreements. And whatever you think about the NRTAs, and no one's even heard of them, but whatever you think about that transfer, Aboriginal people, by not being active participants in that in those negotiations, they were represented by Duncan Campbell Scott as Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. That's who was bargaining on their behalf, because they're wards of the federal government at this point, okay? So... The transfer is considered to kind of just merger, uh, merge and consolidate their treaty rights. That is so not what happened according to the historical record that I don't even know where to start. So when I started, when I read those cases in law school, I was upset. I had a professor teaching me Aboriginal law at the time, James Suckedge Henderson, 
um, who's going to be my keynote speaker at the next Canadian Law and Society Association because everything comes back around. I went up to him after class one day and I said, okay, like, this is not right. Um, the Supreme Court's just off base on these decisions. How do we change this? What do we do? And he's like, well, you're going to have to do it because <laughs> no one's done it. Yeah. And he told me that in first year law and I kind of laughed. <clears throat> and then when I was looking for a thesis topic several years later, I went, you know, those NRTAs are still bugging me. I'm going to go to the archives. And so that's what I did. I went to the archives in Edmonton, Winnipeg, Regina, Ottawa for months at a time, um, read the microfilm, tried to figure out what was going on. And it's a much more complicated story. And because the lawyers in those cases didn't present the historical record, they just hadn't done the historical research. So you can't really blame the judges. They just had to decide on what was in front of them. They made up this legal fiction of merger and consolidation. It does not reflect historical reality whatsoever. So we're hoping to kind of change the trajectory on this and to say actually treaty rights were incorporated by reference into those constitutional documents. So not only were treaty rights constitutionalized in 1982 as part of Section 35, where they recognized treaty rights as being constitutional documents and worthy of constitutional protection, but that they were way back in 1930. So I'm trying to take the argument back about 50 years and say, what does that mean? And what are the implications? Because when Aboriginal people talk about self-government now, and everyone says, that's too complicated. We don't know how to transfer the land. Oh, it's such a big deal. We couldn't possibly do it. Well, guess what, everybody? We did it before in this country. We did it in 1930 when we transferred administration and control from the federal government of all the public domain lands of the three prairie provinces to the crown and right of those provinces. Nothing is keeping us from transferring the control and administration of natural resources and public domain land to a third order of government in Section 35 of the Constitution Act. And that's what Indigenous people from Louis Riel in 1869 up until today have been asking for. Meaningful self-government based on sufficient land territory such that they can govern their own natural resources and to use the revenue from those resources in ways that reflects the economic and cultural needs of the people living in those communities. That's actually what self-government is. There's a very long answer <laughs> to why the Supreme Court was wrong and Powley and Blay, but that's some of the implications that unwind from those cases. Well, I think that's a great answer. Thank you very much, Nicole. O'Byrne, uh, I really appreciate you participating in Of Council. That was fun. Thank you.